Welcome to the Radical Departures podcast, your source for startup storytelling. We're your hosts, Abby and Chris. You'll hear informative discussions full of valuable expertise and actionable insight on the issues you face when launching and growing your startup. This is episode 10 of the Radical Departures podcast. Our guest today is Tamara Brisk, a Canadian who heads up WiredScore in Paris. She has a background in consulting, real estate, and startups, and has brought WiredScore to Europe. In this episode, you'll hear about WiredScore's internet connectivity certification process, Tamara's transition to doing business in France, how she coordinates teams across continents, and so much more. So without further ado, here's episode 10 with Tamara Brisk. My name is Tamara Brisk. I am the head of France for Wired Score. Uh, Wired Score was born out of the realization um, that there has been a revolution in the world and in the way that we work. Um, a few years ago, uh, I checked my email once every three days. Now I send messages all day long on Instant Messenger, and I need to be constantly connected. We realized, looking around the world and in major capitals and in New York where we started, that office buildings uh, were actually preventing people from being as connected and from following, um, from working in the way that they in the way that they want to work, um, and and being ahead of this revolution. Um, and so, in 2013, uh, Wired Score was born actually uh, with the help of Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, it was actually his idea originally to rate. Uh, the buildings in New York City for internet connectivity because uh, it is a competitive advantage for a major capital uh, to be highly connected. And so he asked our CEO, uh, founder and CEO, Ari Barandrecht, uh, to come up with the first rating system to rate building connectivity. Uh, very quickly, in a very Bloomberg-esque American way, they decided that it would be better if this business was not a mayoral initiative, but actually uh, a private company and a startup. Um, and so since 2013, we have been certifying buildings uh, for building owners so that they can attract world-class tenants like Facebook, Amazon, Google, major banks, um, S&P 500 companies, but now uh, law firms, uh, building materials companies, smaller startups, because everybody, everybody needs, has to yeah, have everybody it. has to have it. It's mm -hmm. so important. We've done some we've done some studies, um, and a bank that loses connectivity for an hour uh, is losing millions, and that's not necessarily the trading floor. Yeah. Uh, that's just the headquarters where the executives live. So b before um, I worked for Wired Score, I was uh, the head of business development for a startup in San Francisco right. uh, doing ed tech. So we sold, um, they, they continue to sell software uh, to public schools, um, public school districts in the US. And for months and months and months, I was chasing the Los Angeles Unified School District, oh. um, which is the second biggest school district in the nation. The LAUSD has a building in downtown LA and it's very hierarchical. So the further up on the floors you go, the closer the closer to decision power you get. Right. And so over a matter of months, I'd gone from like the second floor to the top floor. Uh, <laughs> and I finally got into a meeting. So we had thousands of teachers in the ELA USD using a free version of the product. 
we had uh, support from principals. They had sent us an RFP uh, to bid to supply software for the entire LAUSD, which would have changed the fortunes of our little startup. Um, and I was in the sales meeting uh, and I was showing, I was demonstrating the software and the, and the software wasn't working. Right? And this was very strange because I was working with some of the best software engineers in the world and this had never happened before. Um, and so I thought I, w- I was trying to troubleshoot and we'd had this problem in schools before where the school's internet connection had been unreliable. Mm-hmm. And so I said, oh, well, maybe your internet connection is unreliable. Let's look into that. And then I got a text on my phone um, from my CTO in San Francisco who said, Tamara, do anything you can to delay the demo. The internet has just gone down in the office. Uh, And because we were at such an uh, early stage, our servers were still in the office. Uh, And so uh, we couldn't actually demo the software. And the one concern the LAUSD had had about us, this was software that like everybody loved. They were super excited about. But the one concern was... You know, are you a big enough business to mm. support this account? Are you going to be a good, reliable vendor? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's awful. That's the worst. And it's, yeah. Things like that always happen at the worst possible time. You're with a big prospect and boom, and suddenly you look so bad. And it is fundamentally unacceptable. It right? is. Uh, so not being connected, it, it, connectivity is not a luxury, right? It's yeah. more important. Uh, we've, we've done studies about this as well. It turns out in France, we read a study about this in February, people would rather be without air conditioning, <laughs> right? And without electricity than without internet when they're yeah. on. Yeah. How did you get in? I mean, was that was that how you were introduced uh, to the company? Is that how did you make the transition from that other startup? Um, so I, I actually got a call from uh, from William, who is my boss and the, and the president of Wired Score, a couple weeks later. Right. Um, and he said, you know, I, I know you have a job right now, but I hear that you are the person that I want to hire to run France. Um, I'm looking for somebody who has startup tech experience, right. also has real estate experience where I'd worked in real estate before. Right. Um, would you, you know, let me explain my business proposition to you and why internet connectivity is important. Right. At which point I started laughing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've got a story. Yeah. <laughs> He said, you know, would you, would you be at all interested in moving back to France? And uh, I, I had lived in France before. I had always loved living here. Um, but one of the things where, that I had struggled with is that I felt that my career options were limited here. Right. Um, so, you know, there's all of these young, ambitious, highly educated French people here that all go running off to London, New York, and Hong Kong as soon as they can. Right. Um, I had found that it was the same with expats. We were all here for a few years when we were young um, and then would decide to grow up and go have careers in more career-friendly places. Right. Um, and so uh, as a result, I had, I had done that. I had moved back to the U.S. and gotten an MBA and gone to work for a consulting firm and then, and then a big startup. Um, but for, for somebody to offer me a job um, that was, you know, leading a high growth business um, right. in Paris. Right. Right. Uh, was it's the dream. Right. right. The dream is to to live in Paris with a great job. Right. Uh, I just didn't know it was possible. Did you know? Had you been? You had been working out in in California for a few years. Or? I'd been in New York uh, before that, right. and then and then in California. So right. I, uh, I was only in San Francisco for about a year. Right. Now, how did you find? You know, I, I, sometimes people here. I think maybe they over-glorify everything that's wonderful about Northern California. And it is. I mean, there are a lot of great things about it. But, but I mean, did you see things there that you say, ah, you know, in the, in the 
the startup world in France, maybe they could learn this and maybe they could maybe they could learn this in a positive way and take that the good stuff, but maybe things could be a little different here too. I mean, is that sure. Yeah, I think that so um there, you know, there is a startup culture in San Francisco. It's also glorified. Yeah. Um, so, for example, it was really easy for me when I first had to hire at the startup in San Francisco. Yeah. It was super easy for me to hire amazing talent. Right. right. And they weren't even remotely concerned about the fact that this was a tiny startup business. Right. Right. Uh, for them, this was like a, a golden future. Right. right. To to be able to join a startup. Right. Um, whereas in in Paris, people are still scared to join startups. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Once you leave. Uh, once you leave the world of big name corporations in France, right. um, it is very, very difficult to go back. And right. so you have to believe that the startup is going to be very, very successful. Failure is something that is both acceptable and glorified in San Francisco. Right. 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 Um, that is not at all true here. Do you find that that there's a generational divide? Uh, we've talked to enough. We've talked to people so far that are startup startup founders who are a bit older, and we've talked to a lot that are younger, and a lot of younger people sort of don't really care. To you know, one person last week said. He had no desire whatsoever. He has great education, you know, from one of the top schools here. And he said, I don't want to work at a big company. So I, I think that you're starting to see that more and more. It's right. becoming uh, it's becoming cooler and sexier yeah. and more interesting. Right. Um, but I think that that also comes with the realization that startups can be successful and can become great big businesses. Right. Uh, whereas before, I think that if you said startup in France, right, they thought that you were like, you know, selling ice cream out of your basement, right. uh, which maybe that's a great business. I'm sorry yeah. if I'm offending anybody, but... Uh, <laughs> the ice cream makers of France hate you now. <laughs> Whereas everybody in San Francisco yeah. knows somebody who has made millions and millions and millions right. by being, you know, employee number eight right. at some startup that we haven't even heard of, right? right? Not, yeah. not even a Google, right? right. But like a... Joe Schmo startup, but that he sold for sixty million and still had a bunch of equity in. Right, and and I think that's actually an important point too, which is my opinion is maybe sometimes people here get too carried away with the household name companies, whereas there's tons of really cool, great, successful startups in the states. And just because it's not Google, I mean, uh, you know, how many Googles are there? They're still they're great places to work. They're cool. They're doing interesting things, and it's you know it's worked out pretty well for a lot of people. Yeah, I think I think that there are some, and now I think you know in the Macron era, yeah. right? Uh, you know, Macron wants France to be a startup nation. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of uh, there, there's a lot of energy and awareness and excitement around that. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to see how it all how it all materializes. Right. Um, because generally, French society and culture is not set up to be to be entrepreneurial. Yeah, sometimes there's a there's yeah people can be risk averse for structural reasons. So, uh, you know, earlier before we came on the air, I was talking to you about hiring here. Right. Um, oh, you know, we are a we are a high growth startup. I need to hire new people uh, every couple of months, at least, right. um, if not faster. And uh, French employment law uh, means that most people who are already employed have to give three months notice right. before they can leave and join. Right. Uh, similarly, if somebody wanted to leave our company. Uh, they would have to give three months' notice. So it is it is reciprocal. It's fair in that way. Right. Um, but it is really hard to grow quickly yeah. if you have to wait three months, but it's actually more than three months because you have a hiring process too. Right. Right? right. So it takes me 
you know, four months to hire somebody, um, my business needs evolve not on four month increments. There's this balance in the States. They, they unload people maybe too fast and it happens quickly. You know, you can show up to work and they're like, okay, sorry, gone. Uh, but the good thing is you can find, you can find something new very quickly. And here you have that protection, but then it's also, it's quite a burden when you're a fast growing company because it's, it's such a long process to hire people. I do think so. Something that that has occurred to me while running this startup here is that uh, because of the job security, um, my French employees may be freer um, than even some of their U.S. counterparts. So even though we have you know a, a startup culture where we take risks, we beta test things, we do all these things, and that is that is acceptable within our corporate culture. Right. Um, here, people have a longer runway, right? right? Um, right. And so I, I think that they are you know, less, uh, less concerned that I'm going to fire them if, uh, you know, if they take a chance and it doesn't work out within right. a month or two months. Right. Uh, because, because I'm not going to fire them if it doesn't right. work out, right? right. I, I can't. Right. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. a, it's a heavy process. It's a heavy process, but the, you could see the other side of the coin of that, of that liberating them. Right. Now you mentioned in the States, you, you got an MBA, you went to Northwestern. I did. I went to Kellogg for business school. Right. Yeah. And and then after that, you you were working for a big consulting company. So how did that? Do you find that that experience of having worked for a big company, especially a consulting company, did that help prepare you for what you're doing now? Yes, in the sense that um, we have uh, we have professional investors, right? right? Um, and professional investors. Uh, like uh, they like to see a lot of reporting. They like to see a lot of metrics. Right. Right. Uh, they like those metrics tracked. Um, and so I, I have been trained. Uh, I have been trained to do that. I have the vocabularies to do that. Right. Um, and that makes my management of this company much easier. Right. Uh, right. Because you know, I the, the the templates that I have to send every month are, are ones that I'm very familiar with. Right. Afterwards, I, I don't think that there is that much uh, that much more of the of the MBA stuff that really helps me day to day in terms of business. I, I think it's to talk about the business, right? right? To talk about the business, talk about it uh, with words or with numbers right. is an MBA skill. Right. right. To run the business is a hustler skill. Right. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and and I don't think you I don't think you learn that in the MBA. Yeah, I just I, I I thought that was an interesting point though about having that kind of a background because it's sometimes people will automatically poo-poo ever working for a big company and I think there are there are there are certain uh, benefits to it uh, in a startup for exactly the reasons you say I think it's I think it can provide I, I don't have that background mm-hmm. but I I can see where friends that I've worked with that did come from that background I have a friend in in London that started his career working for IBM, which is as stodgy as, the, as it gets. But I think it was long-term, it was quite beneficial for him from a structural perspective of providing the information, knowing what people expect and, and in what format they want. And, and, and I think it can be good. Absolutely. Although I will say my director of business development doesn't have an MBA, um, but she, in a year from now, uh, will be able to do you know, 70% of the reporting that I do. Right. Uh, because she works for me, it's going to make my life easier if I teach right. her how to do it. Right. Uh, right. And, and so she won't have to get an MBA because she she will learn it. Right. Right. Well, uh, yeah. On the, 
at work. Right. <laughs> now, why, as an American company, you're looking at coming to Europe? Uh, why would? <laughs> why in the world would you come to France? Because nothing ever happens here. Uh, so we we sell uh, our certification to to owners of office buildings. Right. Uh, Paris is the third biggest office market in the oh, world. Oh, so there's business here. <laughs> oh my God, this is a revelation. This is a revelation. Um, and it is the it is actually the largest office market in Europe. Uh, so it is bigger than London. All right. All right. Now that wow. I didn't know. Yeah. That's that's interesting. Is it is it. It, does that include the Défense? Is that yeah. Uh, yeah, so that includes the, 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 the metropolitan area? Exactly. That's uh, that's Greater Paris. So that includes La Défense. Right. Um, and La Défense really really helps with those numbers. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That is yeah. a yeah. And you know, and so um, it, it's a great market because of the size. It happens to be a great market for us right now because of timing. Um, so there is a huge amount of development going on right now in Paris. People are building lots of office buildings. Right. Um, and uh, those office buildings are leasing very early. Right. So uh, Paris is an interesting market uh, where they have fairly conservative policies around when they will give the green light to build a 300 million euro office tower. Right. Um, and generally that green light is given after they have a tenant for it. So they oh, will right. they will mock up the plans and then they will pre-let it right. and then based on the pre-letting then they will build. Um, and so all of these buildings that are going up, not absolutely all of them, but the vast majority of them already have tenants. So the the first reason there are actually several reasons, but the first reason that um, that owners ask us for the certification um, is because they want to prove to their potential tenants that the buildings are going to be extremely well connected, right. so that they can get those tenants to sign the lease, so then they can build their building. Right. right? Um, and so we have been working with, uh, I'd say 80% of our business in France is actually development business. We have two kinds of certifications. We have a certification for buildings in development where right. we were certified them on plan. Um, and then we have a, a, a certification for buildings that are already existing and built. Right. Um, and so 80% of our business right now is development business because of this development boom that's right. happening. Right. Um, and so, for example, there's a big tower going up in La Défense. Right. And uh, the tenant said to uh, the tenant said to their prospective landlord, uh, "Look, we want to sign this lease if and only if this building is going to be wired certified." So the the customers, it's something that the the the, the customers know this is an issue because you guys, I think, yeah. it's a quite unique position in that you don't you, you're you're sort of the first to market. You don't have competitors, and sometimes we were talking about this earlier where there's, there's positives and negatives to it. I know I've been in companies where they're the first to market and you have to evangelize so much because people have no idea, oh, that's a market. But it sounds like customers already know, hey, this is really critical if we're going to spend all this money. We are very lucky because we are um, not just the market leader, but the one and only yeah. uh, one and only connectivity certification. And um, <clears throat> I am very lucky because I came into France when we had already certified, I think, 800 buildings in the world right. um, and 800 buildings in the world with major tenants. So we have certified and recertified the Google building in New York right. um, and Amazon building in Minneapolis. A lot of the uh, of the S and P five hundred are tenants in our buildings, right. um, and so we came here with that kind of international recognition, right. um, and also recognition from the owners. So uh, there are iconic towers going up in the thirteenth right now um, that are being built by Jean Nouvel, 
Uh, they're called the Duo Towers. I'm not uh-huh. sure if you've heard of them. Oh, no. Uh, Netexis, uh, which is a oh, major yeah, big, French yeah. bank, is going to be their tenant. Uh-huh. Um, and we certified those towers. Uh, those towers actually belong to a Canadian developer that is called Ivanhoe Cambridge. Right. Um, and we have certified buildings for Ivanhoe Cambridge in Canada, in the U.S., and right. now in France. Now, is that sort of how you entered the market, is going with these international customers where you worked with them in another country, and then it was sort of an not easy, but it makes it a little easier to break into it a makes, new market. It makes it much easier. Yeah. Right? So they gave us they gave us a good nudge right. um, to get into the market. Although we actually we launched France in March of this year, right? Um, with an initial group of fourteen buildings, right? Um, of which more than half are owned by French landlords. All right. Oh, cool. um, and not by international landlords. So right. we had international landlords that we'd worked with in other countries that followed us. Um, but then when, when I first came into the market, uh, you know, real estate is, uh, B2B, right. Big commercial real estate. There just aren't that many players. Right. Um, and so we went around and we saw all of them and we, we showed them the buildings we certified, we explained the value proposition to them. And it's wonderful to come into a market where you have great product market fit. Right. Right. Everybody said to us, oh, we're building this big tower in La Défense and we want a major international tenant. Of course, we need the certification. Um, And then ironically, uh, a lot of the buildings that they were putting up thinking about getting major international tenants, they actually ended up getting major French tenants. Right. uh, Right. Because it turns out that, you know, the leaders of the CAC 40 um, also need to be really well connected to run their businesses. You know, and that's a great point, too. When I when I look at some of the some of the larger companies here, when I dealt with them in the past from an IT perspective, I found them a bit um, slow. <laughs> really, you know, maybe even painfully behind the times. And uh, a friend of mine had been selling social tools, you know, big corporate social tools, and more into marketing departments. And it's such an important part of you know any think of any household name, French corporate. They're, they're really doing an impressive job of customer outreach on Facebook, on, you know, using these online tools. And so it's you, you can't not have connectivity. It's too important. And I, I think everybody realizes that now. Yeah. Right? Um, but it, it was a realization that came for different different people at different time. Right. Uh, different companies at different time. I think different landlords at different times. Right. right? Um, we had early adopters and, you know, more reluctant adopters. Right. Uh, over time. Uh, but I think now everybody, you know, everybody thinks that we've arrived. I right. often get the question, which is like, what is going to be the next thing in building connectivity? I have a lot of answers to that. But like the thing in building connectivity now and for the next couple of years is just going to be to catch up. Right. Right. Like everybody's thinking about the next thing. Right. It would be great if we could just all use the Internet in a really right. reliable way first. <laughs> right. right? right. <laughs> now, you mentioned that you recertified the Google yeah. building. Um, so when you certify a building on development, does that mean that you then have to go back in later once it's been built? And double check that everything is actually as they planned it. So we have to do we have to do that, okay. um, and that's actually part of certifying a building um, on plan. Mm-hmm. So we'll certify the building on plan, um, but we consistently go and do a confirmation visit when the building is delivered. Okay. Um, we also work very hard to make sure that the tenants benefit from the excellent connectivity mm-hmm. that the landlords have worked so hard to plan and provide. Right. right. Um, so we're generally there at, at delivery with the tenants anyway, um, so that we can kind of onboard the tenants okay. connectivity wise into the building. Um, 
But in addition, technology does change really fast. Um, And so we actually uh, reissue our scorecard every two years minimum. Oh, right. All right. Um, And every two years, uh, buildings have to be recertified Mm -hmm. uh, based on the newest scorecard. Okay. Um, If you... Here's a great example. So we we have certified the Shard in London. Mm -hmm. It is a platinum building. Uh, It is fabulously connected. Uh, However, when they first started uh, conceiving of the Shard, so, you know, conception phase, design phase iPhones didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they put up that building not realizing that everybody was going to be attached to their telephones at all time. Um, and so afterwards, they had to retrofit in some really great technology so that you know right. you get really great cell service in the shard. Um, but the shard was not originally built that way. Mm-hmm. Right? And, you know, and the shard is, we're not talking about an old building, right? right. Or we're right. talking about a new modern building. The building owners who are really, you know, who are your customer base, who are the most interested, are they typically leasing out to specific types of companies, insurance, banking, or is it anything? Uh, so they're, they're generally pretty big companies, right? Um, so we are talking about, you know, uh, often publicly traded companies, uh, big technology companies, big banks. So people who are signing significant leases and who are in the position to uh, dictate some lease terms, right, um, and and make those demands. Uh, so we're we're talking about generally prime real estate, right? Um, in more mature markets, so uh, in New York, for example, where we have been present since 2013, um, it, wired certification has now become a kind of standard, right? Um, and so you now have you know smaller smaller tech businesses who will benefit from that because landlords more and more realize that for their buildings not to become obsolete, right? right? Um, right. They, they need to be up to date. They need to be certified. Um, and certifications have a value. We're, we're only starting to see this with wired certification because we're so young. Um, but with the environmental certifications, uh, for example, certifications have a value when buildings are sold. Right. Um, uh-huh. So buildings that are sold these days that are not environmentally certified uh, get sold at a discount. Right. Right. And, and you'll see the same thing with with uh, Internet connectivity. Uh, so, yes, I think so, especially in the sense that um, I, I think that environmental certifications are very important, right. but they are uh, less crucial for the day to day business and the P&L right. um, of a company. Right. Um, and so uh, we have we have tenants demanding wired certification in ways that, that they have not demanded the environmental certification. Right. Even though they probably should, because environmental certifications are are very good for like OPEX, for example. How are the buildings in Paris versus New York, if you can generalize? Yeah. Um, they're not similar in terms of architecture, mm-hmm. obviously, but they're actually pretty similar in terms of uh, connectivity. Uh, and things. something that's really interesting, uh, we have just around the corner from here, uh, we have certified this beautiful building on Avenue Georges V, which they are calling Georges V. Um, and it is an old Tasmanian building, absolutely gorgeous. And then they have worked very hard uh, to put amazing connectivity in it. Um, but that building actually had like some some very easy things to start with. Uh, so it had several possible paths to run uh, to run fiber. So you had this kind of redundance, right? Like if you have a problem with one of your fiber lines, then you have another fiber line that's in a totally distinct protected path. Um, that was already in that building's architecture. 
Um, so they had to, we had to think about it and actually look at the building and think, okay, how are we going to use these pathways to run the fiber? Because obviously when it was built um, at the end of, what was that, the end of the 19th century, uh, that's not what it was conceived uh, for. But yeah, there's some, there's some interesting sort of intrinsic things, uh, intrinsic advantages sometimes in these Tasmanian buildings. You just have to think about it from the perspective of how do we do this for connectivity? Um, so, so yeah, I would say, I'd say Paris and New York, uh, in, in very similar, uh, in very similar places. For you launching the business here in France, what's the most, what's your biggest challenge getting started here? Uh, as an, you know, yeah. as a, you, you guys are an outsider, you're a, an, an unknown market. Hiring fast enough, right. being able, being able to hire the right people and hire them fast enough. So, you know, France has amazing engineers right. um, and relative to the U.S., uh, you don't have to pay them quite as much. Right? right. So they get paid amazing salaries for France, but those amazing salaries are not right. Uh, would not be amazing in San Francisco. Right. But you have to convince them. Right. To leave uh, to leave like a major French company right. um, and go on a startup adventure. And then you have to wait months and months and months for them to arrive once you once you hired them. Right. Uh, if you know if you were fortunate enough as I was to have a huge sales pipeline um, and a lot of demand, you're then worrying about delivering your product. Right. Um, right. Which you know has not been a problem in the U.S. and the U.K. It's been really easy for us to hire engineers fast. Right. What's the easiest part of launching your business here? Well, that's it. That's the a paperwork problem. <laughs> <laughs> paperwork, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> probably not the paperwork. <laughs> I I think for us, this is somewhat industry specific, but I but I think it's French as well. B two B real estate is a really small world. Right. Um, they um, there are just amazing organizations here. So there's an organization in France which is the Association des Directeurs Immobiliers. Um, and so it's all the heads of real estate of all the major French companies. Right. Um, there's 240 of them, and they belong to this one organization. And they do like monthly breakfasts. Right. So if you want to go speak to 240 heads of real estate who matter to you in France, you just have to go to breakfast. It's great. And that's just, you know, the, the Adid, it's one example, but the, the major real estate conferences. So MIPIM is the world's biggest real estate conference, right. and it is in Cannes in March every year. Um, if you want to go see your clients in France, you go and hang out with them for a beach. I have to go down uh, there. Play. That's awful. <laughs> yeah, you have to go down to Canada. I hope you get special pay to do that. <laughs> That's, oh, God. Um, so I would say it's the it's the gatherings. It's the it's the social aspect of it. Right. Um, with the social aspect and the small world um, aspect, which have which have made it really. I mean. I wouldn't say it's been easy for us, but but I think make it much easier for us here um, relative to, you know, I, I don't even know what my CEO and co-founder would have to do to get 240 heads of real estate in a room in New yeah. York, right? Yeah. We'd probably have to, you know, fly them all in and pay for them. Uh, something that Touchwood, I think I have done very well, but that was very important to me was to hire people who were insiders. Right. So I I have hired a couple of people who have worked for the major real estate players um, in France for years and years. Our head of operations is a telecom engineer who spent 10 years in the SFR group. Right. And and how how do you find yourself received in the market being uh, a foreigner like like we are? You're you're not French. Uh, you're Canadian. Uh, <laughs> is that is that a positive? Is it a negative? Is it a, a neutral? 
Um, I, I think that it's generally positive. I again think that, you know, being self-aware and also being aware of uh, market dynamics and how things have gone for, say, other foreign certifiers when they've come into into France has been very important. Right. Um, so I had done some research and I had heard that some other certifications so that don't do connectivity, but some other building certifications when they'd come into Europe had not um, from the U.S. had not localized um, their scorecards or their ways of doing business. Right. And that that had led to a lot of frustration on the part of their clients, uh, clients feeling like they were being penalized for, you know, not doing something in an American way, which they couldn't, which wouldn't make sense in France and right. they couldn't even possibly do. And it wasn't necessarily better. It was just right. uh, a local thing. And so we spent six months uh, poking around uh, basements and buildings in France, trying to figure out what, French people did, right. um, and then adapting adapting our scorecard uh, to do it that way. And so, I think we try and tread the line here, and I think we do it pretty well of saying, you know, we are international. We have a thousand buildings of experience behind us, so we right. know more about connectivity than anybody else, right? right? Um, however, right, we you know we respect the fact that we are in France, and and we know we have to adapt, and we know we have to localize. Um, and I, I don't think that that's unique to our kind of business, yeah. right? I think that that's every every business that wants to go uh, into into a local market has to respect that right. market. What's a typical example of something that maybe worked well in the U.S. or somewhere else, and here you had to make a change to, uh, you know, for the French market? Sure. Um, so in the U.S. and the U.K., uh, building owners will often sign up for a certification without knowing what their level is going to be. Um, and then during the certification process, they like, figure out what their level is going to be. They'll work with us to improve their level. Um, and then and then the certification will come out. Um, despite the fact that we we are still willing and still do with work with clients here to improve their level of certification, right. many French clients will not sign on until they have an approximate idea of what level uh, they can target. Right. Uh, and so we, we'd be in these chicken and the egg conversations where I'd be going, sign on, I can tell you your level. And they'd yeah. go, tell me my level, and then I'll sign on. <laughs> can right? you tell? I mean, is it easy enough? A thousand buildings under your belt, maybe you have a pretty good idea, you know, just showing up. Yeah, I can, these guys are probably going to be in the positive territory. Or is it easy enough to tell, or is it still? No, it's like it requires like a, a complex audit by right. engineers. Right. Uh, right. So, so something that we are going to be launching here in November of this year um, is we are going to uh, train a bunch of third party engineers um, oh, right. in France um, right. who actually do this work. They call them feasibility studies. And they do this feasibility study mm. work for the green certifications. Right. Um, and so we are going right. to, uh, we are working on the curriculum right now. And we are going to train and accredit uh, a group of third-party engineers in France right. who will be able to do this work um, for the clients. Um, and that way the clients will feel secure knowing their level. Right. Uh, and then, and then consent right. it. 80% of the office real estate market in France is in Greater Paris, right. um, which means that 20% of it is outside. Yeah. Right? And 20% of a market that big is a lot of market. Mm. Right. Um, so, so we are taking uh, you know, all of France very seriously. Yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll also be, looks like next year, we'll probably be launching Belgium as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, cool. And do you guys have, have uh, uh, teams elsewhere in Europe right now? 
we're launching Germany in September. Right. So uh, we've got a, a tiny team on the ground in Germany right now preparing right. that launch. Right. Um, but there will be a full staff team in Berlin pretty soon. Right. Um, we just launched Dublin uh, about three weeks ago. Um, but we are for the moment serving Dublin out of the UK office. Right. Um, but depending, it, we, we had a big launch in Dublin and it's going very well there. Uh, depending on how that goes, we might step up. Uh, Dublin right. Cause well. Dublin is, is really, I think doing a nice job of capitalizing on Brexit and, uh, you know, whether Brexit happens, who knows, but it certainly has scared off a lot of, especially banks, uh, who are moving and Dublin's done really well in that. Absolutely. And they're also having a development boom. So they are putting up uh, space for about the equivalent of 50,000 people. Right. Right. Um, and so if you if you think about the about the Brexit refugees, they are betting big on being a benefiting from Brexit. Of yeah. Welcoming I, a lot of JP benefits. Morgan, one of the big American banks. Was, JP Morgan is yeah, just moved a bunch of people. there. A lot yeah. of people, a shocking number of people, considering Dublin is kind of small. Mm -hmm. And one other question I had is, is working for an American company, being based here, okay, you're anywhere from six to nine hours ahead of, you know, how do you, how do you make those kind of relationships work? Because, you know, here, we're also talking to a lot of French companies who are looking at going to the States. And, and I've certainly been on the receiving end of that. I've been an outpost, uh, working with American companies. And it's, it's, I think it's something that's tricky to do well. So um, connectivity matters because video conferencing um, is yeah. is the way forward, right? right. So we uh, we use software called Zoom, uh, which is fantastic, and which means that I can see my colleagues right. uh, all day, every day. But we have to be very conscious of when we schedule meetings. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, I've got a two thirty. Uh, I've got a two thirty tomorrow, which is an eight thirty in New York. Right. And uh, we try and schedule meetings within business hours. Right. But what that actually means is uh, the guys in New York wake up earlier and I stay later. Right. right? So right. Um, right. so they've got an 8.30 on Thursday morning. Um, I had a 7.45 p.m. on Monday night. Right. Um, right. So it, it just means that basically my hours go until about, I need to be available until about 9 p.m. Right. Right. And um, and they need to be available starting at eight. How often physically do people meet up? Because I think I always think that's uh, it's obviously it's expensive to fly back and forth. But I think it's a really important thing to do to keep a company together. Uh, yes. So I've got um, my my head of operations and head of marketing on a plane right now to Berlin right. um, to go and help out the guys in Berlin launching right. Berlin. Um, I was in Dublin three weeks ago for, for the launch, I would say we have travel within the company. So, you know, we're talking about within the three main, well, now four offices, right? right? Four offices. Uh, we've got to have people going every week, right. right? I personally probably go every month right. or so. Right. Um, and we do a, an all team retreat. So we'll have we're about 40 people in the world right now. We might be 60 by the end of the year. Right. And we will all uh, go and have a party right before Christmas. Oh, cool. Uh, oh, cool. Together. So once a year, we do a we do a big retreat. Last year, we did that in New York. This year, we're trying to figure out what the best location is to bring all these yeah. people together. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, I think it really, it's, it's yeah. a cost, but it's really well worth it. It is really worth it. Yeah. Uh, we learn so much, and I, I've been reading a lot about 
you know, hiring talent, retaining talent, um, all these things. And uh, all these studies say that what keeps people excited about work and going to work is their colleagues. Right. Uh, and and I, I feel that very strongly. When, right. when I was in Dublin three weeks ago uh, with the whole UK team and our CEO from New York, um, I, I felt like especially proud and excited to be part of this adventure. To me, it's such a cool space. And I love the fact that it's new. It's so important, but it's people, so many people just don't even know that it exists because it, it's, it really is. It's so critical for, for businesses, especially I know, obviously, the big, uh, you know, the big companies, but also for startups. And I think having moving into a building with uh, proper connectivity is, you know, you're dead in the water if you don't have it. Very true. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay, thank you. wraps up another episode of the Radical Departures podcast. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and join us next time on Radical Departures.